Let's take our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 1. Yesterday at the men's meeting, I think in total, if I counted all the men that we had in that room, we had about 25 men at the men's meeting yesterday, right guys? For those of you there, we had 25. So if you're a man and you're not coming, you missed out because it was a rocking and happening place yesterday. So we had uh, six of us from Pilgrim Bible Church. And then before we got there, there were these more mature men. Maybe there were six of them. And then toward the end, there was another church of younger men that came in. And there was maybe 15 of them. And one of the guys was was preaching. I mean, he was laying down the word. And sometimes maybe you've heard, I've heard that Washington is the most unchurched state in the country. I, I think they must mean downtown Seattle. <laughs> because even when I drive around, I see churches everywhere. But I was very encouraged that at this, sometimes even that place in Tacoma, that restaurant, can be considered a, I don't know if you know this, it can be considered a dangerous area. Perhaps it is. But, you know, in that area, I've witnessed one time to a prostitute, a drug dealer, and a pimp, all at the same time. <laughs> so it's, I, I praise God that God has his people, and he's saving people in Tacoma and Washington and Seattle. That was a great time. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ were, was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived is in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord, the prophet. By the way, he's quoting from Isaiah 7.14. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angels of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Lord, as we are in this Incredible section, Lord, of Scripture. Lord, we pray again that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear. And though this story may be common, may we gain and glean new new insights and a new truth. And may our hearts be encouraged and convicted for the Lord, for the law of the Lord is perfect and it causes the heart and soul to repent, Lord. Renew us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What are you doing on Christmas Day? Are, are you free on Christmas Day for, for lunch? So I'm pulling a, a surprise on, on Lisa. I invite you over for Christmas Day, and we'll have Christmas Day chili. 
I'm joking about coming to my house on Christmas Day. Please, please don't. But let's say we did, and we had chili. Would that throw you off? Have on Thanksgiving or Christmas, have you ever had Mexican food or Italian food? I think my mother would drop down dead if we didn't have a turkey. You know, she's from the deep south. But Lisa and I and our in-laws, uh, her sister, Noriko and Eric, one time we had a Mexican slash Italian Christmas lunch, and it was fantastic. It was so good. But it, it, it is funny. Most of the world, if you have Christmas, what kind of food must you have? You must have some kind of meat. To celebrate a Christmas, a Christmas holiday, or even Thanksgiving, even in the Canada and in Canada, their Thanksgiving. Do you have turkey? Maybe I think so. Anywhere you have a holiday that's Thanksgiving or Christmas, you have to eat meat. No vegetarians allowed in my house on Christmas Day. Why am I talking about that? Well, if you go to the store and buy chili, then at least I would. I look for a can of chili that has meat, and often it will say in the can, carne, is that right? Yeah, and so that's what I want. Give me the meat. Well, the word incar, incarnation, carnation is from Latin, and that means what? Meat. So incarnation means that something has been fleshed out, uh, something has donned and put on meat, flesh. And so when we talk about the virgin birth of Christ, by the way, notes are to my left, you're right on the counter. When we talk about the virgin birth of Christ, ultimately what we're talking about is that God the Son added to himself flesh, our meat. That's what incarnation means. That's what that Latin term means. And it even comes through in some other languages like Spanish. And this morning, when we look at our passage, it's about the virgin birth, but that the virgin birth was ultimately about the incarnation of God. That God himself took on meat, or took on human flesh to be with us. The virgin birth of Christ is... So, of course, incredibly important. We should not misunderstand it. We can't ignore it. We need to understand it and actually apply it. And when we do, when we understand and apply the virgin birth of Christ, then truly we'll have not just a merry Christmas, but ultimately a merry life. By that, I mean a joyful life filled with great joy. And so, what are we to understand And then, what are we to do? So first, what you need to understand. And mainly, it's this, and then we'll flesh this out. The virgin birth is ultimately about the incarnation of God. The virgin birth of Christ is God the Son took on human flesh. Now, to unfold this first, and you can see in your notes, it's not primarily about Joseph and Mary. It's not primarily about Joseph and Mary. When you look at the text you have in front of us, 18 to 25, certainly you can see, like in verse 19, Joseph was a righteous man. And of course, Mary, in the passage giving birth to to Christ, they are important characters, but they're not the central character. The, The central character is this child. 
and verse 20, who is Emmanuel, who is to be called Jesus, because he would save his people from their sins. This passage even is not primarily about how to help young people get married, right? You can look at verse 18. There could be a, a temptation, and I've heard before people refer to this verse to talk about arranged marriages. They seems to be have been some type of arranged marriage between Joseph and Mary, and they could have been around 15 years old. And if you look at verse 18, it says there was this betrothal that had happened, which is more than engagement, but less than marriage. However, when we look at this passage, it's descriptive, and the details that are given about Joseph and Mary are details that are given about them to underline and to highlight their virgin birth, the incarnation of God. That's why these details are given, and we'll see that as we go through this passage. Now, having said that, we should consider these characters to to some degree. And you can see in verse 18 that Joseph and Mary, they were betrothed, which is, again, more than engagement. They would even be a type of legal contract that would be given. And so much so that if there was adultery that had occurred, there could be a divorce or even the woman that had committed adultery or the man could be stoned to death. They could be executed. And so here you have Joseph, and it says in verse 19 that he is a righteous man. That means he loves God. He's seeking to to love God and to love others, you know, the, the two great commandments. He's a godly man pursuing the Lord. But it says in 18 that before Joseph and Mary had intimacy, that Mary was pregnant. And it says she was pregnant by the Spirit of God. But Joseph, seeking to to know God, obey God, follow God's word, verse 19, he doesn't want to disgrace her. And I love how it says, verse 19, he's a righteous man, and so he's going to scold her and expose her and rebuke her and make it very public. Is that what the text says? No, it says he's a righteous man, and so then he's actually gracious and kind, and he loves her, and he doesn't want to shame her, and so he wants to have this type of clandestine operation to send her away secretly so she won't be shamed and get in trouble. And so Joseph is planning, conspiring in a godly way of what to do, when what happens, you can see in verse 20, when he had considered this, he's dreaming, and in the dream, God, through this angel, says to him, Joseph, son of David, which is, remember, important, going back to chapter 1, 1 through 17, you're in the line of, of kings. Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. She is pregnant, but this pregnancy has, has happened. The conception is by the Holy Spirit. It's by God. God has done this. Now, if you were to read Luke one thirty-five, an angel appears, appears to Mary and says that you have a child, and this is by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the mighty hand of God. 
So God says something very similar to Mary, but he's also saying something very similar here to Joseph. Now, again, this is amazing. And what is being highlighted is not just Joseph's righteousness and and Mary and that she loved God. But if you look at verse 18, found to be a child by the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, Joseph, don't be afraid. Mary, 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 take her as your wife. Because this conception is by the Spirit of God. In Luke 1.35, the, the mighty power of God has come upon you, Mary. What is being emphasized in the text, in this story, is that something incredible and amazing, unparalleled ever in history, has happened. And that is, there's this young woman who has not had any type of physical intimacy. And what's happened is she's pregnant. She's a virgin, and yet she has a child. That's amazing. And Satan has tried throughout history to copy this. And if you study some religions, some religions in the East, you'll have an elephant pierce a woman's belly with the tusk and so that impregnates this woman and she gives birth. You have another episode where a snake does the same thing. So there's been many different religions, even even before Christ at time, where Satan was trying to copy the, the virgin birth. He can read the Bible. He can read Isaiah 7.14, Genesis 3.15, right? Satan knows these things and tried to, 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 to copy but always coming short of the true religion of God. This is utterly unique. A pregnant virgin. Is that biologically possible? No. Right? Is it scientific? Because people today would say what? It's science! So, a pregnant virgin is not scientifically feasible. It's not possible. For man... But it is for God. Second, the Holy Spirit was the agent of the conception of the embryonic Christ, but the Spirit did not create God the Son. The Holy Spirit was the agent of the conception of the embryonic Christ. That is when God the Son, when Christ was It was the Spirit of God, the power of God, the third person of the triune God that oversaw what happened with Christ humbling himself and becoming a teeny, 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 tiny embryo, which is incredible. And it was not that the Holy Spirit or God the Father created God the Son. God the Son has always existed because by nature God the Son is eternal. However, God the Son and being the Christ, the Holy Spirit, God the Father planned it, the Holy Spirit oversaw this event where God the Son humbled himself, not relying on his own divinity, but rather relying on the Father and the Spirit and becoming a very tiny little male embryo. That was all by the power of God. And this is the incarnation. And you can see this in verse 18. 
to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And the Greek term, technically, is not by, it's, it's ak, out of or from the Spirit of God. It was out of or from the person and power of the Spirit of God that this pregnancy occurred. It was not a biological conception, but a spiritual conception. Even in verse 20, the word says here, has been conceived in her of the Holy Spirit. The word spirit is intense and is emphatic in verse 20. The child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. It would be the way to to read verse 20. It was a an action that was carried out mysteriously by the Spirit of God. Even look at verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall be with the child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. The virgin is going to give birth. What? It's a biological impossibility, but the Spirit of God came upon her, and God the Son, in a mysterious way, part of the plan of the Father and the action of the Holy Spirit allowed himself, that is God the Son did, to become an embryo placed inside Mary's womb. The virgin gave birth to a son and this son, his title, not his middle name, it's not Jesus, Emmanuel, Christ. Christ is a title, but Emmanuel is also a title, which means God with us. And the Hebrews of the time of Jesus Christ and Joseph and Mary wouldn't understand. They would understand that if Jesus is called Emmanuel, well, that's Isaiah 7.14. That's Isaiah 9.6. They're saying he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. They would understand exactly what this was referring to. Now, there, there's a great mystery here, right? We can't fully understand this, not not exactly. God, the eternal, self-existing God, the Son, added flesh, meat to himself, but didn't do it as a 30-year-old or a 33-year-old man. He did it by becoming an embryo. You know, if I was to do it, I wouldn't say, I'm going to become an embryo. Who wants to become an embryo? What humility. That's Mysterious and, and wild and, and incredible. Philippians chapter 2 says this. And I think it's important that we understand this. Philippians chapter 2 verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Now, what does that mean, he emptied himself? Well, there's three participles that are going to tell us, and it's not he got rid of his deity, it's not subtraction, it's addition, Taken the form of a bondservant, being made in a likeness of man, being found in the appearance of a man. Both internally and externally, without receiving any type of sinfulness, God the Son added humanness to his 
self. Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, verse 14, became flesh. What Philippians and John says in those brief verses, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, is detailing out for us more exactly what happened. This passage is saying that God the Son went on a unique mission called the mission of incarnation, which would be mission impossible for anybody else. But God could do it. Galatians 4.4 4 will help us perhaps a little bit to understand how the whole Trinity was involved in this. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son. That is, God the Father sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And then we see in Luke one thirty-five, and we had mentioned this earlier, that involved in incarnation was not just the Father, but even the very Spirit of God, which we saw in Matthew, but even in Luke one thirty-five. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So you have the whole Trinity here. God the Father planned it. The Holy Spirit oversaw it with His power. And the one who actually carried it out, the mission Himself, was God the Son. Was Jesus. Who always eternally existed, but added humanity to himself and actually went to the extent of becoming a teeny tiny embryo. And all the mystery that's involved with that was was Christ fully conscious as an embryo, you know, being God. Never, we, we may never fully understand that even when we get to heaven. But what is truly a mystery is the amount of humility that God displayed. That should be what grasps our soul, is how humble God the Son was. Number three, the virgin birth means that Jesus had no sin nature. The virgin birth means that Jesus had no sin nature. This is also what is being emphasized, I think, with verse 18, to be a child by the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. That is, it was not that Joseph and Mary and and the holy marriage had physical relationship of intimacy. She became pregnant and gave birth. That's not what happened. I believe the Catholic Church believes that Mary stayed a perpetual virgin, or at least some, some do. That's not because that would make her more holy. That's not biblical. That's God designed in marriage to be that beautiful, sweet time of intimacy. However, when that happens, not getting into the theological nuances of this, but when a mom and dad, when there's a pregnancy, part of their own sinfulness is also, I wouldn't say transmitted, but because of Adam and because of the curse and because of fallenness, is what's produced is a sinner. 
a sinful man and a sinful woman, even in a holy marriage, produce an unholy child. (laughs) Every time. Except for this time. Because the child was not by Mary, and it was not by Joseph, but placed there by God himself. Now, you can go back, you can read uh, Hebrews chapter chapters 1 to 4, and it will talk more about the incarnation, and it will talk more about the, the humanity and the deity of Christ. But we know from Hebrews 4.15 that Christ is, a, is not unable to sympathize with you. He is able to, in other words, sympathize with you more than anybody on earth or anybody in heaven. Jesus Christ understands you better and can help you better than anybody else because not only is he God, but he was very, very human, but without sin. Now remember, sin is an alien to humanity. Sin is an intruder. Adam didn't have sin. Not until he fell. So what I am saying is that God, in his wisdom, in order for there to be a Savior, the Savior had to be a sinless Lamb of God. To be a sinless Lamb of God, there had to be a birth where the mom and the dad actually did not participate. Otherwise, their union would have produced a sinner. So then God stepped in and humbled himself, took on humanity, basically turned himself into an embryo and placed himself in the womb of Mary. Basically. That's incredible. But it was for the purpose of what? To have a sinless Savior. He who, know, he who knew no sin became sin for us. For that to happen, there had to be a virgin birth. There had to be an incarnation of God through a normal means of birth giving. And therefore, there could be, as it says in verse 21, she would bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He can only do that if he was sinless. He can only be sinless if there was a virgin birth. The virgin birth means that Jesus had no sin nature. So if somebody denies the virgin birth, then actually... They're implying that Jesus was a, yeah. And so that's why denying the virgin birth is, first, you're denying the text, but secondly, you're implying that Jesus was fallen, which is great blasphemy. And then fourth, the virgin birth of Christ Jesus shouts, the divine warrior, savior king is Jesus. You can say, the virgin birth shouts, Messiah, the prophet, the priest, the king, the Lord. It shouts, Emmanuel. However you want to to phrase it, it's shouting that this is the Messiah. This is Emmanuel, that divine savior, warrior, king. And that's why verse 23 is quoted where it says, Behold, it's the Lord. Look, look, pay attention. And Isaiah 7.14, it's quoted. Turn with me back to Isaiah 7.14, and we'll talk about this just briefly. Again, the Israelites would have understood the history of this and understood why this was being used and quoted. In Isaiah 7.14, this passage here is about this judgment that's going to come upon Judah when Ahaz is king. 
Now, if you remember, Ahaz is listed in Matthew 1 as a descendant of Jesus and of Joseph. Was Ahaz a good king or a bad king? He was a very wicked king, and he would sacrifice children to be burned in the fire, even his own child. So, God in his mercy, though, however, there are two other kings in a foreign country that are going to come down and attack and wipe out Judah. And God comes to Ahaz and says, Ahaz, I will give you a sign that I will protect Judah. And Ahaz is basically, no, I don't need a sign from you, God, no. And then God says, no, Ahaz, you're a wicked man, I'm going to give you a sign. And the sign will be Isaiah 7.14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time, he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. So basically, before the boy is almost three, these two kings will be dealt with. Well, that took place not with the birth of Jesus Christ. That took place with Isaiah's own child. When Isaiah's own child was almost three, those two kings were forsaken. However, Isaiah 7.14 did not happen then. Right? The word here, virgin, maybe in your margin, it might say maiden. The word in Hebrew for virgin, at times, lexically, historically, could mean maiden. Most of the time in the Old Testament, it, it means virgin, and that's why it's translated virgin. But the Greek word in Matthew 1, 23 means virgin. And so here you have a kind of a foreshadowing where you have God saying to Ahaz, I'm going to protect the land of Israel, and, and here's a prophecy. One day there's going to be born the Messiah. And you'll know this person is the Messiah. He'll conquer all evil forever and even deliver Judah and Israel. You'll know this because there'll be a virgin birth. And there will also be these other details. And those other details are listed in verses 15 and 16. Well, when Isaiah's son was born, some of those details happened, but not all of them. And that's why Judah was spared for then, but later was Judah judged. Yes, because the real true Messiah had not yet arrived. And then you have in Isaiah 9, chapter 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And so certainly Isaiah's son did not fulfill this. And in context, Isaiah 9, 6 would go back to Isaiah seven fourteen, And so this is all pointing ahead to the Christ that there would be, the, and even Isaiah 53, 
and 55. There would be this child who would be Messiah, who would be the mighty God, who would deliver justice, really not just for Judah and not just for Israel, but for the whole world. And there'd be no end to his government. And so the birth of Christ was the inauguration of Isaiah 9.16. 7.14 being fulfilled by Jesus inaugurates and starts Isaiah 9.6. And Isaiah 9.6 and following has yet to be finally fulfilled, but it will be one day. And so all of that, I tried to say that very briefly, all of that is basically being understood or shaking people's hearts and minds as to the truth of what's really happening with this birth. I've heard on the radio sometimes, and even on TV sometimes, maybe you have, my first thought is, the volcano blew up! Let's get out of here quick! Have you ever heard that? Beep, beep, beep. I always... Mount Rainier, it's so lovely. What a lovely volcano. It's going to blow. Let's run. EBS, right? It's what's called emergency broadcast system. Bang, 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 bang. So the Holy Spirit talking to Joseph and Mary, and then and, and this text being given to the church, and this being preached, and Paul preaching in Isaiah, Isaiah <laughs> Acts 13. All of this is like a spiritual emergency broadcast system alert saying the most significant and amazing and credible even scary event has happened the true king has been born now how do we respond to this with the remaining time how do we respond to this, to this incarnation of God the Son, to the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, that Emmanuel, God, is here? How do we respond? Number one, realize the greatest issue you have is your sin. The greatest issue you have is not your spouse's sin. It's not. The greatest issue you have is not your child's sin. Though I might be a problem, I'm not your greatest problem. Your greatest problem is you. Here it says, in verse 21, name him Jesus. That's the Latin term. The Hebrew term would be Yeshua. We would say Joshua which means Yahweh saves. His title will be God with us. God with us. Jesus, Yeshua, saves. Yahweh saves. This is Yahweh himself in the flesh. And he saves his people from their sins. It's not just he's going to save the Gentiles from their sins. He's talking to the Jews. You're sinners and you need to be saved. And that is your problem, is that you need salvation. The greatest problems that we have is not political. It's not health. 
It's not the economy. It's not environmental. It's not the church. It's that you're a sinner. All those issues, health, wealth, politics, the environment, God is going to solve all of those problems. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and there'll be no evil ever. The main issue is your sin. Jesus saves. That's why we have First Timothy one fifteen, right? It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. That Jesus basically saves sinners. Christ is the Savior. And Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners. First John 1, 7 through 10 says, basically, if you say that you have no sin, you're a liar and you're saying God's a liar. Do you have sin? Yes, I have sin. I need a Savior. And that Savior, his name is Yeshua. It's Jesus. His title is Emmanuel and Christ. I had to be saved. It's not that I lose my salvation, but I still need that salvation of Christ. I, I will never earn my way into heaven, ever. I still need Jesus as a Savior. Jesus saves. That's even a song, right? Jesus saves. There's an, another song that I, I like to tune a little bit better by Switchfoot. <laughs> Maybe it's not Switchfoot. Rescue me, I think it is. Rescue me, rescue me. I, I need a rescue. I made a mess out of me. I need to be rescued by my Savior, who is Jesus. And there has to be this understanding, this, this poverty of spirit. Blessed are those that are poor in spirit because we deepen our being, are, are humbled that, Lord, I'm a sinner and, and I need salvation, Lord. Thank you for saving me. And maybe you're here this morning and you realize you're a sinner. Maybe you realize you haven't called on the name of the Lord. Scripture says that if you call on the name of the Lord and believe in your heart that God, that Jesus rose again from the, from the dead, believe on him and you will be saved. There is this humility of I'm a sinner. Lord, save me that can lead to happiness. And then secondly, coming out of this, keep learning humility from Christ. Keep learning humility from Christ. You can go back and read Philippians 2, 3 through 8. We already read it, so I won't read it again. It's not just Christ's death that demonstrates his humility, it does, but even his incarnation demonstrates unparalleled humility. If we just think about it for a moment, he got hungry, he got tired. It says that he fought a type of uh, depression and despair so much in the Garden of Gethsemane that he was sweating drops of blood. He was insulted repeatedly. He was beat up, conspired against, betrayed, tortured, murdered, and died. And none of those things overpowered him. It wasn't that he was so weak or couldn't figure out what was happening. And just less than a blink of an eye, he could have vaporized everybody, right? And less than a blink of an eye. He didn't even have to say anything. He could have just... And everybody would have been cast into hell. But he said, Father, forgive them, for they know now what they do. 
He was raised by people actually that he made. He was with clothed with fabrics actually that he had clothed the whole world with. He was breathing air that he had breathed out. He went through the process of embryo and childbirth and infancy and that whole process he invented. And yet because he loves his people, he humbled himself and was willing to do that for you, for all of us who trust him. So if Christ was so humble and he's the king, then we should also be humble. And being humble doesn't mean necessarily that you are thinking always negative things about yourself or that you think less about yourself, but rather it means you realize you're not the center of the universe. You're not the center of your marriage. You're not the center of your house. You're not the center of work. You're not the center of everything. Christ is. Jesus is. The Lord is. And then out of that, you seek to serve others. So this New Year's resolution that's coming up, maybe instead of growing up, maybe you need to grow down. Grow down. That is, get down. Be be humble. Exalt Christ. And always tell yourself that Jesus is Lord. And it's about Him. And it's not about yourself. Number three. Get comfort that the Lord is with you and He's for you. Verse 23. Look, the virgin shall be with the child and it shall bear a son. And they will call His name Emmanuel. God with us. God is present with us. It's really amazing truth. Now, God is present with us always, like Psalm 139, by his omnipresence, by his nature, God is always here. If you're in the depths of the ocean, if you're snorkeling or scuba diving and you're way down deep, is God there? Yes. If you were on Pluto, is God there? Yes. So God is always with us by his very omnipresence. But even for the believer, we have the Spirit of God, which is different than His omnipresence. There is a mysterious way where God is even by His Spirit in each of us. And that's a mystery and incredible. But even here there is something different, and that is that God Himself, and even now, is human. He, he's near us in the sense of at this time, he was near them on earth, but he's even near us now by having become a real flesh and blood human. And even now, he's still human, a glorified human, that is God the Son. This is truly incredible. Think of it this way. Are, are, are you poor? Are you low on funds? Is your cash account going down and down and down. Sometimes you'll wonder, Lord, where am I going to sleep? I, I, I can't pay mortgage. I, I can't pay the car bill. I, I can't pay any bills. Lord, this is horrible. What's going to happen? God can't understand. God's always had everything. He, he needs nothing. Well, Matthew 8.20 says that Jesus had no place to lay his head. Have you ever realized that? That Jesus didn't have a pillow? God, the king, didn't have a pillow. Do you have a pillow? 
then you're doing pretty good because Christ had a rock and you have a pillow. Saying this to say the scripture is teaching God is near us by his omnipresence, by the spirit of God, but also by Jesus humbling himself and becoming very, very human like you and I. We read again Hebrews chapters 1 through 2. The reality is that Christmas, if you're not careful, can be a lonely time and a sad time. It can be. And for many, it is. This year, however, get comfort from this truth that we're invited to go near to the throne of grace. Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16. Because Christ is human, a very human, yet without sin. And he's the best representative that you could ever, ever have. And he loves you and cares for you and is always there for you. And you can draw near to him. Take comfort that God the Son left the celestial eternal glories of heaven and came to a cursed earth full of grime and the sludge of sin and darkness and despair. And he did that for you. And you and I have to take this truth and preach it to ourselves. We have to remind ourselves of this truth over and over and over and over and over again. Think of it this way. There's that great verse and scripture which says in Psalms, and I think it's used several times, if God is for me, who can be against me? So praise God, yes. But what, what about it if it went the other way? If God is against me, then who can be for me? If God is against me, then who can be for me? The grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ is God with me, God with us through Jesus means if anybody, if God is for you, then nobody can be against you truly. What I'm saying is that the incarnation could have been, it, it, it could have been God against you. That Jesus Christ came to earth to judge the earth which he will in the future. But in his first coming to earth, it was not Emmanuel, God against you. Rather, it's Emmanuel, God is for you. And invites, as it says in Isaiah 55, everyone to come and to drink at his well and to take refuge in Christ. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. God with us. Praise God, it's not God the Son is God against us, but God for us. Well, the Christmas holiday comes and goes. Pretty soon Christmas will be over. Take out the Christmas tree, get rid of it, and then we're back to Bah Humbug. Get on with life. And then next Thanksgiving, we'll be like, oh, how dare they? They've already got Christmas stuff up in the grocery store. This is just terrible. And then... We'll make our list of Christmas and we'll get those Christmas items and so forth and so on. And it just keeps going on and on and on and on and on. However, the incarnation does not. The incarnation happened one time and it's done and it's over with. It will never happen again. The next thing we're waiting for is for the return of Jesus Christ. Life is difficult, but we should pause and tell one another Mary Incarnation. Not just Mary Genealogy, but Mary Incarnation. Now, 
This has no reference to one of the songs we sang. I, I wrote this down before the hymns we sang this morning. But there is a song by Sovereign Grace Music that it's kind of coming off of the song, um, Oh, come all ye faithful. And it is 100% true. Even Ephesians 1.1, I think, talks about it. Christians, by God's grace, we are faithful. We seek to be faithful consistently. But it's also true that we could sing it this way. Oh, come all ye are unfaithful. Are we unfaithful? At, at times we are, right? And so there's a sovereign grace song that says, Oh, come all ye who are unfaithful. That is, we're not perfect. We still need a Savior. We still need Christ with us. And so even this morning, maybe you've had a bad week, a bad month, a bad year, maybe a bad 25 years. Maybe Jesus says, Come unto me. And if you come humbly with meekness and say, Lord, save me, even restore me, Lord, forgive me, he will. Oh, come, all ye who are unfaithful, come to, to Christ for forgiveness. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this virgin birth. We thank you that you humbled yourself and, and incarnated yourself so that you could be a savior, so that you could be our redeemer, Lord. We praise you and we give you glory for that. In Christ's name, amen.